Welcome to our Sunday morning segment of the Grace Chapel podcast. If you would like more information about Grace Chapel, visit their website, gracechapel.org.au. There you can find more materials in growing your identity in Christ. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Let's just ask the Lord to speak into our hearts this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace to each one of us, and we lift your name up and we give you praise, and we pray that you'll speak into our hearts and show us the way to go this morning, that you might touch us. In Jesus' name, we pray these things now. Amen. Now, Pastor Chris asked me, to uh, speak about the resurrection. Of course, last weekend we, uh, we remembered it and we uh, celebrated what Jesus had done for us on the cross and we can't remember too much the amazing things that he has done for us in our lives. And I want to start by reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> and if you've got your Bible you can follow because uh, this is Paul speaking, and uh, he's writing this passage only about 20 or 30 years after the actual event of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's speaking it with such clarity and authority that I can't uh, compete with what he says, so I'll, I'll share it with you. And uh, if you'd like to keep your, that passage open a little bit, uh, as we go on, this is what, uh, this is what uh, Paul said. But tell me this, this is verse 12. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? So even back then, there were people starting to say, that didn't happen, did it? You know, and this is only 20 or 30 years after the actual event. Uh, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and our faith is useless and we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. Can't be, can it? And actually, we're sort of wasting our time a bit here this morning, aren't we, if it's not true? If it's not true, then we're just... Hanging around, enjoying one another's company, and that's about it. And then he goes on, And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. <clears throat> so Paul is saying definitely uh, that this is an event that has happened. And, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed our world. Uh, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. Millions of people have been affected by what Jesus did uh, that almost 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and it's something to be really celebrated. <coughs> and the resurrection of Jesus has impacted the world in many different ways. It's affected how people think and what they believe. And even now, when we, you know, as we've been hearing, there's this pushback, this, uh, this uh, wanting to rewrite history and say that this death did not happen. Even now, there's millions of people around the world like us worshipping today, worshipping him and honouring him and lifting him up and uh, giving him praise for what he has done because it changes our lives. It gives us a new hope, a new direction in life and the ability to look into the future with hope and uh, with strength and a positive foundation to stand on. And uh, because of that, it's changed all sorts of things in our world. Uh, people don't actually talk about it, but it's changed... Uh, things like uh, how people are cared for. You know, we've got hospitals now, but firstly, there was just some Christians looking after one another and other people. And uh, through that, the whole medical system around our world just floated out and, and touched the world. And it's come from those first few people who trusted him. Our education system, that came from Christians originally. And my grandfather, he was born in a small town and the only school in town when he was there was a church school. And so he went to that church school. And that, that story is multiplied millions of times across Australia and across the world. Uh, so that's where, where it all started. Of course, politics is affected by what Jesus has done as well. And we still have the right to think and, and uh, act and uh, function in certain ways in our country that's being oppressed and suppressed and challenged, but we still have that right uh, and we're very grateful for it. And that's all because of what Jesus did in dying on the cross and being raised again by God's amazing power. Now, if you've still got that passage open, Paul actually writes on a little bit more and develops his argument a bit more. So, if you go back to uh, verse 20 again, and we'll read on a little bit more and hear what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you can see 
just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, just as everyone dies because of all uh, we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, that does not include him, God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son, of, Son will put himself under God's authority so that God will give his Son authority over all things uh, and will be utterly uh, supreme over everything, everywhere. So eventually, he's going to be the supreme ruler and authority. That's what that word is actually saying to us. So that's something to be encouraged and for us, isn't it? Even though in this world there's a battle, there's a war going on uh, about how people think and so forth, but in the end, God has got a major master plan over it all. Now, I, I just want to take you now to uh, the little passage about when uh, Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem at his death, uh, towards his death, and he came to, uh, and this is in uh, John 11. And, uh, and reading from verse 23. Uh, and Martha comes to Jesus and tells him that her brother, Lazarus, had died. And uh, uh, if we go to uh, verse 20 of chapter 11, when... Martha got word that Jesus was coming. She went to meet him. But Mary slayed, uh, stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you everything you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes 
in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she said. She told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So we can have great confidence in him because he, he's looking to encourage us and so that we have the power of life. He wants to give life into each one of us in, in our ordinary daily lives so that we can trust him with all the things that happen to us. And there's lots of things happen to us, aren't there? <laughs> we all know uh, the different stuff that happens into our lives. But being a follower of Jesus is a challenge. And uh, we are going to be tested in that challenge. So uh, Jesus actually tells us that we've got to uh, estimate the cost of being a follower of him. Are we really willing to pay the price of being a follower of him? You know, it's going to cost. It's not cheap. It's got a high price tag, many zeros on the end, you know, in other words. Uh, this time of the year, when I was on the farm, we were uh, getting ready to sow our crops. And so we would be getting in all the fertiliser and the seed and the fuel and, and fixing all the machines up and uh, we'd be getting ready to sow our crop for the year. Because you actually have to spend all that money, you know, it's a lot, we would be spending over $70,000 just to put our crop in, you see. So we have to count the cost. Is this going to work, you know? If we put the seeds in the ground, are they going to shoot up? Are they going to produce a harvest? And that's the question that you and I have to ask ourselves in our faith too. Uh, there's a price. So... Are we going to be willing to pay the price that, of following Jesus and trusting him and, uh, and let him speak into our lives? We have to ask him to come in and help us in our lives uh, every day. Now, I'm going to go just another thing uh, now and talk about when we read these passages in the scriptures... How much can we trust what is being, um, has been written here? Is it trustworthy? You see, there's been lots of people saying, oh, well, you know, that was written a long time ago and, and uh, all of that sort of thing. And uh, actually, uh, there's a, been a bit written about how trustworthy the New Testament is. Uh, there was actually an article uh, in one of the newspapers last weekend that went all around Australia and it was extremely well written talking about the trustworthy of the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and the scriptures. Now isn't that interesting? When all the other stuff's coming and it was very well written and I've got a copy of it if you want to have a look. Uh, and it was written by a fellow called Greg Sheridan. Uh, and in it, he made quite, it was quite a long article. Uh, one of the points was that because of the discovery of the Dead Sea 
scrolls, uh, they didn't actually have any of the New Testament books or material that they discovered when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what they did find was uh, what the culture was like in the time when Jesus was around, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were put in there just before Jesus uh, was living and, and went to the cross. So the things that were written about in the Dead Sea Scrolls actually authenticated what is written in here. It talks about... So that's one, one aspect of uh, what was found. The second thing is that, uh, that what we have in here was written, as I've already uh, spoken, was written very close to the time when these events actually happened. And in the case of historical records, that's a rare thing to have something that's written so close to an event. Usually, because in the old days, to, uh, to get a book, you had to copy it, you know? There'd be one copy, and then you'd copy your copy off that one, and then there'd be that copy off that one. And if your writing's anything like my writing, then that, that's a bit hairy, you know? Uh, but they... It's an interesting thing, and I'll just put this bit in. Uh, they discovered in 1980, they found a, a fragment of a scroll on silver, uh, on silver and it, uh, it, they think, was put, uh, written about uh, eight, six to 800 years uh, before uh, before the New Testament times, and it was, and it worked out that it was just a little scrap of uh, a about three verses in Numbers, and so it was written about two thousand six hundred years ago. And when they compared what was written there with what we have written in our Bibles, it was almost exactly the same thing. So that's pretty good going, isn't it? You know, after being written hundreds of times, it's still authentic. You know, it's still pretty close in as far as accuracy uh, is concerned. So reliability is quite, uh, quite good. Uh, so, so that's one area in which we can be more assured, and actually uh, uh, scholars of uh, ancient texts, they as well have, are much more uh, confident about, about what's written in the New Testament. They mightn't actually agree with, you know, the scholars mightn't actually agree with the resurrection and all those sort of things, but the actual, what's written is is very accurate, uh, so we can have a great deal of confidence in that. Now, the other thing was that there were many people living in the first century, around the time of Jesus, uh, who were all kinds of officials who wrote different things about Jesus. Uh, they weren't Christians, 
but they wrote about him. And uh, uh, Pastor Chris has talked about Josephus. He was one of those people that talked, mentions, and then there's, there's about four or five others. Uh, there's, uh, I won't read all their names out, but I've, I've got, uh, and we've actually got what they wrote. Uh, and I've got a little bit here that I'm going to share with you that was written by a fellow called Pliny, Pliny the Younger. And Pliny was a magistrate. And we know a lot, a lot about him. He actually was born uh, in an area around Lake Como, and Sue and I have been to Lake Como, and it's a really beautiful spot. That's where he was born. But he was a magistrate, and he was a magistrate who had to deal with Christians because they were pretty bad people, these Christians. And, uh, and this little section just gives you an inkling of what it was like to be a Christian, and this would have been towards uh, 80 or 90 AD. And that, that's the, so we've got the actual words and what he said, and this is what he said. And it's really startling and scary. Uh, and this is what he said. Meanwhile, this is the course I have adopted in the case of those brought before me as Christians. I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit, admit it, I repeat the question a second time and a third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death, for I, do, for I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their pertinency and inflexibility, uh, obstinacy, should certainly be punished. There are others who display a little madness and whom I reserved to be sent to Rome, since they are Roman citizens. So you remember, Paul was one of those that got sent to Rome uh, because they were a little bit obstinate, you see, and, uh, but they were Roman citizens, so that gave them another leak. Otherwise, it was a death penalty for these people. Uh, and that's historic. That's what actually happened uh, back in that. And this, that's not the only piece that's uh, from... There's many other authors as well. So that puts us right back, you know, in, in what was going on uh, when Paul wrote these words that we read about. Now, there's a third thing that we should remember. Nearly, and as far as we know, all the disciples gave their lives because they believed in Jesus. They nearly all died unnatural deaths uh, because they were persecuted in one way. Now, if you were a, uh, someone who had become a Christian, but you didn't really think that Jesus had risen from the dead or he died, would you give your life for that belief? Do you think you'd sort of say, yeah, I'll... And if you came before Pliny the Younger and he asked you, are you a Christian? 
you a Christian? And you knew what the result was going to be. Do you think you'd wriggle a bit? Or would you be certain, you know? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I'll trust him with my life. And it meant with my life uh, then in that particular instance. So the resurrection of Jesus actually is a huge challenge to all of us, isn't it? You know, just to think, you know, this person is dead and now they are alive. You know, it's something we're not used to. We don't expect. We don't think it's going to happen. Oh, yes, but we're in church and we sort of, you know, we've been thinking along these long lines for quite a while. But how seriously do we believe that Jesus actually is alive and he's with us in our daily life, that we can trust him with everything that, we, that happens to us uh, and there's plenty of things that happen to us. If there was no death and resurrection, is there a God? If there is no God, what difference does that make to our world? And there's a lot of people that don't, don't want there to be a God, isn't there, in our society? Most. Most people don't want there to be a God because, see, if there's a God, then uh, you are accountable to him. And if you're accountable to him and there's some sort of penalty or punishment for living away from him when you, should, when you know that that he is what he's done for you and and he wants you to come and to be a part of his life and he wants to pour his life into you he wants to bless and encourage you well then if he's alive then we're accountable to him and we need to honor and worship him and please him in our lives uh, I had this other interesting thing happen on Friday. I met up with this lady that I've got to know just a little bit and uh, she'd been to the Belgrave Heights Convention last weekend, you know, Easter Convention, uh, and still quite a large organisation, I think. And uh, she was telling me about a speaker that they had there this year and he was from a large church in Cairo, in Egypt. And if you know anything about Cairo and Egypt, uh, to be a Christian in that city is a dangerous thing to be because the, the Muslims are blowing up churches and, uh, and uh, attacking Christians. But, but this particular church is having a huge impact on that city. Apparently the church has grown to about 10,000 people uh, and they're a praying church and they're reaching out to their Muslim neighbours and, uh, and people are seeing the life of Jesus in these people and it's an attractive thing compared to what Islam is offering. Because if you belong to uh, Islam, then you will live in fear all the time. Being a Muslim is a fearful thing because if you step out of line... Uh, just one example, in uh, Malaysia, they have two police forces. They have 
the regular police like we have here, but they have a religious uh, police force as well. So if you do the wrong thing, and if you have a supermarket and they sell some alcohol in the supermarket, it's sort of like in a cage, and, uh, and if you go in there and you're a Muslim, then these police can grab you because you're not supposed to have any alcohol, you see? Uh, and you can be thrown into jail and all sorts of things. So there's that. So if you're a Muslim, then you live in fear because you don't know who's watching and you know, you're under that sort of oppression all the time. So that's why the church, this church in Cairo is very attractive to these people. And, uh, uh, and as well as that, they're a praying church and they're seeing people healed and, uh, and they've actually seen three people raised from the dead within their church. And uh, uh, this lady was telling me about one of the examples. Uh, this uh, couple had a son, a young son, who got sick and died, so he was uh, put into the morgue and uh, they organised a funeral and the mum went to get the son out from the morgue for the funeral. She opened the door of the fridge and here he was sitting up, alive. And uh, she yelled and screamed, you know, as we all would, you know. And uh, they got the doctors to come and have a look through in and they did the same thing they were yelling and screaming because it wasn't you know it's not something that we expect to have happen uh, and uh, so that's what one of the things that happened uh, in that particular church in uh, Cairo uh, so uh, and I actually there's a passage in uh, Luke 24, uh, you probably, I've read it before, because it, it's one that really grips me. You see, uh, you just see the emotions of the disciples when they discover that Jesus isn't dead as they expected, but he's alive, you see. Uh, and I, I just I love, love this passage, so I'm going to share it with you again. Is that all right? I hope it's all right. That's uh, Luke 24. It's in a couple of sections but Luke 24 uh, and this is what it says then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognised him as he was breaking the bread and just as they were telling about it Jesus himself was suddenly standing there amongst them yeah, you imagine if he just turned up here. That would be a little surprising, wouldn't it? But for these people, they thought he was dead. And here he is. He turns up right in their uh, little group. Uh, and uh, so, and uh, then he says, peace be with you, he says. But the whole group was startled and frightened. Now, doesn't that sound a bit realistic? I think it sounds pretty realistic. Uh, thinking they were seeing a ghost. What's this? They're saying to one another. 
Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you can see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands, his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief. Now, I like this verse. They stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. See, all the different emotions, you know? And it's an amazing passage, I reckon. Uh, uh, and it's so real. And then he asked them... Do, then he asked them for something to eat and he had a bit of fish with them and to show that he was uh, alive. And I just think that that's just fantastic, you see. And as I read the New Testament and I read these passages about Jesus, he just speaks into my heart and life. I'm going to read you another one just as I get to finishing. So this is John 14. Uh, John 14 and it's just sort of just an encouraging little passage that I wanted to share with you. John 14 and reading from verse 1 uh, and it says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house if this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Whenever, is, uh, when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. And I like, I like this uh, uh, Thomas, and he says, "No, we don't know, Lord." Thomas says, we have no idea, dear, uh, where you are going or how we can know the way. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you would know who my Father is. For from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Let's just pray. Thank you, our Lord, that uh, you're gracious to us. You've revealed yourself to us in such an amazing way and that we can be confident about our hope that is in you alone, Lord. And so we just uh, commit, uh, commit this week to you with whatever is facing us uh, and uh, with the issues that are there that are struggling away in our minds. And we call out to you, Lord, to come and touch us and encourage us that we might renew our strength and faith and trust in you. And we pray this in the amazing name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour.
Amen. Please tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message from Grace Chapel. Bye for now.